Thanks very much, Brian, for a very encouraging text this morning as we begin the book of Joel. I invite us, before we look at our uh, text this morning from the scriptures, uh, I invite you to join me in prayer as we worship together today. Father, we just take a moment and pause now with gratitude for the privilege of each breath of life that we enjoy today. We come before you, we ask you to teach us from the scripture, but more significantly, we ask you to shape us that we might live into this particular moment in history, unique, of course, in such a way, Father, that uh, we allow your light to shine through our lives. We'd like to pray particularly We who are gathered here as Americans this morning for our nation and our election that's upcoming. We pray for peace. We pray for the next leader, whichever man that might be. We pray, Father, in accordance with your admonition in the book of Timothy, that those who govern would govern wisely in order that we might live lives peaceably so that we can shine as light as citizens of a higher kingdom. Toward that end, teach us even this morning. Father, we'll thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this dystopian movie entitled The Book of Eli, which came out many years ago, uh, Denzel Washington is the star. He's the good guy. It's apocalyptic. There's been a nuclear explosion of some sort, and he has the last remaining copy of the Bible, if you know the story, and he's trying to take that copy of the Bible to a library in San Francisco. So he's walking across the United States. And then there's, there's an antagonist in the movie who wants to get a hold of the Bible. And he wants to get a hold of the Bible so that he can rule actually in a wicked way. Because he says in the movie, whoever has this book can make people do anything. Which is a stunning word until you look at church history. Because the Bible has been used, in fact to reinforce the ideologies of nationalism and racism and xenophobia and colonialism and slavery and environmental degradation and capitalism and socialism and totalitarianism and communism. Every ism can be justified with the Bible. It just depends on the lens through which you look at the scripture. And so what we want to see this morning is that though there are these many different lenses that will lead to different conclusions, The main lens that God has offered us from Genesis to Revelation is one massive story in three acts, order, disorder, reorder. That's the macro story of the Bible, and it's the micro story that occurs over and over again. It's the story of Paul. He had order as a leader of Judaism, disorder on the Damascus Road where he's blinded, reorder, as he's filled with Christ. It's the story of the nation of Israel, the order of the Abrahamic covenant becoming a nation, the disorder of idolatry and the implosion of the nation, which Joel speaks to, the reordering of a new covenant. It's the whole story of the Bible, order in the garden, disorder with sin, reorder in the book of Revelation at the end of the story. And that's why I'm excited to share the book of Joel with you at this particular moment in history, because I would argue no book offers interpretation and encouragement for those in the midst of disorder, better than the book of Joel. No book is better than Joel for this moment in history. I want to show you right now a slide uh, from March 13th in Austria. This uh, was a Friday at the end of a ski week where I was privileged to teach in Austria. Uh, Many of these folks, all of them in fact, 
are from Bethany other than one guy who's adopted Bethany who lives in California. And so if you'll notice March 13th, how close we're sitting together and uh, how much fun we're having and how, how we're smiling. This was at two o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Thanks, we can move on. By 4 p.m., we'd skied down the mountain. I was in a staff meeting at the conference center where I was teaching where the director said, uh, I need to send all the volunteer staff home. We have to shut everything down. There's a virus that's broken out. Everyone's leaving. The ski hill is closing tomorrow. All the volunteer staff are sent home. I need to get to Switzerland so that I can fly from Switzerland to London because all flights out of Europe are canceled, save flights from London. But the trains from Austria to Switzerland are canceled, so I get a ride from uh, Austria to Switzerland in a car from a friend who drops me off at the airport. I fly home. Two days later, I get a message on my phone. As soon as I land, I get this message from the person who gave me a ride to the airport and says, I hope you're okay. I have the coronavirus. And then I get a second phone call from the person with whom I skied all week saying, I also have the coronavirus. So I stayed home and uh, self-quarantined here in the city for two weeks because I didn't want to infect my wife who is the primary caregiver to my 94-year-old mother-in-law, disorder everywhere. And I'm one of the fortunate ones. I'm still employed. I'm able to work mostly from home. I'm healthy. And all of that was before race riots and George Floyd tape and economic downturn and the second wave and the political blitz inciting fears of racism and fears of losing freedom and loss of trust in politicians and journalists and scientists and the post office and sports figures, not to mention the third wave and the most recent economic downturn. And hello, we haven't even had the election yet. Wow, disorder, that's right. So in this first session of the book of Joel, I'd like to look at the value and necessity of disorder. The value and necessity of disorder via three observations. Observation number one, all through the scripture, disorder happens, accept it. Number two, collective disorder gathers everyone's attention. That's a good thing. Observation number three, disorder is a unique time for transformation and seeking God. First observation, disorder happens. We heard the scripture. Hey, has anything ever happened like this in your days or your father's days? Rhetorical question. We can apply just the question to today and say, no, nothing's ever happened like this. And then God continues, tell your sons about it. Have your sons tell their sons. Their sons, the next generation. This is a boom, catalytic moment. Well, what's the moment in the book of Joel? Four swarms of locusts have come in. The gnawing locust came first, took some of the crop. The swarming locust came second, took more of the crop. The creeping locust came third, took still some more of the crop. And finally, the creeping locust comes in and takes what everything else hadn't taken until there is literally no food left for the nation of Israel. No crops remain. This is a picture of God's economic judgment on a people. And we tend to think of the judgment of God as being this situation where God is kind of the active initiator of pain and suffering as if God's sitting up in heaven and kind of tossing suffering at us. But here's the reality. While God is God and God can do that, that's not usually the way it works. Usually uh, the things that happen in the world are the result 
of choices that we collectively as humanity have made and the choices that we have made have led to situations. So for example, in Romans 1, we read that the prevailing way in which God judges is this. There's a phrase in Romans 1, when people refuse to acknowledge God, refuse to give thanks, it says this, God gave them up. God's like this. Hey, you want to be master of your own faith? You want to run the show? You want to make your own decisions? You want to build your own ethical construct? Have fun. Go after it. And you will live with the consequences of your choices. So if you decide that the least of these aren't worthy of access to doctors or clean water or a living wage, you'll live in a world where the least of these are more vulnerable to death and suffering but the reality of their death and suffering will spread to everyone because in God's universe, we're all from one blood, rich, poor, black, white, healthy, sick. The Bible says it. When one suffers, all suffer. If you decide pesticides are a quicker way to profit and profit is more important than healthy soil, then chemicals in the soil will downstream pollute your body and you'll live unhealthy lives. If you decide that people of color have the curse of ham as 19th century commentators decided based on a misreading of Genesis 9, then you'll justify slavery. And if you justify slavery and then subsequently enact Jim Crow laws after slavery ends, you will reap the ongoing fruits of racism in your culture as we are reaping such fruit today. Here's the deal. Galatians 6 is the law of the universe. We reap what we sow, but there's another equally vital truth. We live in a fallen world, and in a fallen world, there's evil. And in a fallen world, things go wrong. There are wars, there are earthquakes, there are hurricanes, there's, there's theft, there's cell mutations that become cancer. There are nar narcissists who take control of nations and lead them down destructive paths. There are injustices and slavery and racism and colonialism. Stuff happens. Locusts are here. It doesn't matter how they got here. It doesn't matter. They're here. Whether the locust is COVID or economic or race or politic or cancer or unemployment, it's here. And I want you to see that God uses every form of disorder, every form God uses to get our attention. So disorder is God uh, uh, with a megaphone saying, hey, wake up. I'm calling you to something higher than where you're living. My upbringing was with church and God at the center. Every Sunday morning, every uh, Sunday night, every Wednesday night, youth group, solid answers, clear understanding of scripture, you know, obey God here, reap blessings here. And then my dad died in spite of prayers for his healing and his death led in my life to a subsequent depression and health issues and anger at God. And I moved from this clear, safe center to what Barbara Brown Taylor, uh, an, an author calls uh, the, the edge of the map. My faith was at the center of the map. I moved to the edge and on the edge, in the midst of disorder, there are more questions than answers, more uncertainty than uncertainty. Uh, excuse me, more uncertainty than certainty. And clearly a sense when we're on the edge of the map that we've never been this way before, nor would we ever choose to go this way. But God takes us to the edge. God takes us to the place of disorder because God has things to teach us in the time of disorder that can only be learned in the time of disorder. Hear this, the edge of the map is just as valuable as the center.
You need the center and you need the edge. And sometimes you're privileged to be in the center where it's safe, secure, shalom, peaceful, filled with understanding. Other times you're at the edge. That's okay. We need edges. This is the story of Paul. He's at the center, the leader of Jerusalem. He's led to the edge on the Damascus Road with blindness. And then he's filled with Christ and Christ becomes a new center. This is the story of Israel, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, They're at the center. They become a nation. Then there's idolatry. They move out to the edge uh, with the implosion of the nation and the destruction of Jerusalem. And then there's a new covenant. They move back to the center. This is the story of the Bible, the garden, Satan, sin, death, cast out, second Adam, Christ, new order, revelation, center, edge, center, edge, center, edge. That's your life and mine. So the first observation here, significant and important, disorder happens. You can't avoid it. And second then, know this, collective disorder captures everyone's attention. In the time of Joel, the disorder was a plague of locusts. And the text is clear that the suffering that is brought about by the locusts has captured everyone's attention. I mean, there are personal disorders in each of our lives. Often, you know, when like there's a thing in our marriage or there's a thing with our savings, there's an economic thing or there's a health thing. We all have personal things, but there are seasons. And friends, we're in one now when there's collective disorder. Sometimes it's a family system. Everybody in the family is suffering. Sometimes it's a church system. Sometimes it's a city. Sometimes it's a nation. Not this time. This time it's global. Global disorder. The locusts have come. Everyone's paying attention. And in Joel, everyone's paying attention because the crops are gone. There's no food and there's no drink. So in verse 13, it says the priests are mourning. Why are they mourning? Well, there's no wine for the ceremonial uh, parts of worship. In verse 11, the farmers are mourning. Well, why are they mourning? Well, because there's no crops. So they've lost their source of livelihood. In verse 8, the bride and the groom are mourning. Why? Because there's uh, no grain uh, for offering and wine for ceremony in the midst of the wedding and no wine for the celebration after the ceremony. And then, of course, it says in verse 15, the drunk mourns, obviously. No grapes, no wine. No wine, uh, no, no, no party, no party, no drunk. Everyone's mourning from the priest to the alcoholic. But here's the thing. <laughs> Everyone's paying attention to the same problem. And I would, dis- I would say that's an opportunity. Two authors describe this as the space between the familiar and the new is the space that's completely unknown. We've moved from order dis- to disorder, and right now, collectively as a nation and as a, as, a, as a globe, we're fully in disorder. We're not yet sure what the full reordering will look like. We're at the edge of the map. And one of the wrong responses in such times, when everyone is paying attention, one of the wrong responses is the lust to get back to normal. In other words, watch this. We go, we go order, disorder, 
reorder. And the reorder, if it's God's reorder, is always higher than the previous order. So the worst thing we could do is say, oh, man, I just wish I could wake up and it could be January again, before COVID, before race became a thing for white people anyway. I wish we could just wake up and have it, have it be normal again. Hey, listen, normal wasn't that great for a lot of people. <laughs> people of color, Native Americans. Normal wasn't that great for the soil and the water table and the air. To live at the level of American consumerism, if we all tried to live that way across the planet, it would require five Earths worth of raw material. We can't do it. The old order wasn't working. So moving toward a reorder for the map requires a letting go of the old order. I was here, now I'm here. I don't like it here. This is the edge of my map. But rather than rushing to move back, I need to sit here and allow God to move me into something new. One author says it this way. Our old world is left behind, and we're not yet sure what the new one will be. This is a good space where genuine newness can begin. This is a sacred space where the old world is able to fall apart so that a better world can be revealed. If we don't encounter such space in our lives, we start idealizing the old order. But in order to embrace the new, we must be willing to let go of the old. So the worst thing we can do is say, oh, I just want to get back to normal. Let's just, let's just get back to the buying and the selling and the consumerism and the hidden addictions and the stale marriages, the loss of intimacy and the judgmentalism and the, and the huge wall between the rich and the poor. Let's just build it all over again. No. <laughs> Here's another wrong response. Just get mad and blame. Blame the president. Blame a conspiracy theory. Blame QAnon. Blame the left. Blame the right. Don't blame. The response that God has for us is this. When disorder comes, there's one question we ask. God, what are you trying to teach me right now? That's the question. In, in, in Genesis, when Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and sent to Egypt, he eventually rises to second in command in the nation. And then there's a famine and the brothers go down to Egypt uh, to buy grain, the 10 brothers who had sold him into slavery. And so they're buying grain from Joseph. They don't know that he's their, their brother. It's been 20 years. He's disguised. He's speaking a different language by now. They don't recognize their brother, but their brother sells them grain. And so they pay their money, they take their grain, and on the way home, they find money in their sacks. The money that they thought they'd given to buy the grain. It would have been very easy for them to develop a conspiracy theory about this. How they'd been framed for theft, and they're going to be arrested and sold as slaves in Egypt, and how the Justice, uh, Justice Department is going to turn a blind eye to this, because they've, they, the Justice Department, has been infected with a moral blindness that spills out of 5G towers. So the only recourse they have is to get some guys with grenade launchers and storm the state capitol or something like that, right? Like, come on, I've been victimized. Instead, I love this. In Genesis, when the grain 
is in their sack and the money that they thought they'd use to buy the grain, the, the one thing they say is this, what is God teaching us? Boy, do we need that now. Because it's easy to develop conspiracy theories, particularly in this age. It's easy to blame, particularly in this age. The week ahead in the United States will potentially be filled with disruptions, pushing us further and further from the old center of our map. It could be COVID, it could be the election, it could be post-election, it could be more personal. It could be depression, it could be a secret growing addiction that has come about as a result of social isolation and economic hardship. It could be serious marriage problems that COVID didn't create, but that social isolation that has you at home with your spouse is now revealing. And we're moving farther and farther from the old center. You can feel it. Collectively as a nation, we feel it. You feel it if you just scroll through uh, uh, the news on television. It doesn't matter if it's Fox, CNBC, CNN, your, your social media feed, the season premiere of This Is Us. Everything is saying the same thing. The world is on fire, man. We don't all agree regarding solutions. We don't all agree regarding causes. We don't even all agree regarding the nature of the problem or problems. But we all agree on one thing. Our world is, for the time being, terribly, terribly broken. That's collective awareness. And that, friends, is a good thing. Because out of collective awareness can come collective transformation. After Germany lost World War II, people restructured in such a way that they sought to preserve the middle class, seeing that the lack of middle class led to a revolution. After Rwanda, a majority of Rwandans worked to actively combat tribalism, seeing that uh, receiving Christ as their personal savior wasn't enough. They needed a Christ that broke down dividing walls. And now they knew it because they'd been through collective disorder. After the economic implosion that led to the, to, to the Great Depression in America, America created a new deal to help people get through hard times together. Order, disorder, reorder. After addiction, a friend of mine is now working with people with addiction. After facing uh, uh, this existential collective awareness of racism in America, we're growing, we're learning. We're having good debates and it's painful. And it's hard and it's good because disorder is uncomfortable, but when we sit there and allow it to teach us, it moves us into reorder. Disorder can become the soil of growth and positive transformation, but not by blaming, not by seeing a return to the old order, the old center of the map. Getting back to the old center is not the thing. Getting mad and blaming is not the thing. Instead, we're called to the third observation. Times of disorder are times of seeking God. And if it's collective disorder, we collectively seek God. Look at verse 14. Consecrate a fast, God says to Joel, for Israel, Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and, watch this, cry out to the Lord. 
what's important to note here is how shocking this entire event would have been to the nation of Israel. Here's Israel. Uh, many uh, commentators place the date of this book pretty early, actually, maybe even 800 B.C., and Jerusalem wasn't destroyed until 586 B.C., so even a couple hundred, maybe, we don't know, but maybe even a couple hundred years before the actual implosion of, of, of the nation by the Babylonians. And so here's the, here's the thing that I want you to see. They thought they were doing just fine. And then four swarms of locusts. You know, the first one comes in, and then it's like the hurricanes in Louisiana this summer, right? One, two, three. Just, you know, it comes one after another, wave after wave after wave of suffering. And each time you feel a little more beaten down, a little, little more, and a little more, and a little more, until you're shattered. That's Israel here. And it would have been shocking because they thought they were God's chosen people. They thought they were the nation that would be light to all the other nations. They thought they were the greatest nation on earth. But in this book, first it's the locusts with all the economic devastation, and later it will be the Babylonians and their attack and destruction in Jerusalem. And they who thought they were on top, suddenly in the midst of disorder, realize, oh no, we are not who we thought we were. That's okay. God says, listen, now that I have your attention, I want you to seek me. Pour out your heart in lament for what's lost. That's a fast. That's a solemn assembly. Confess your own sins, your own personal sins. Man, I was cruising along, checking off the boxes. Church, giving, service, family, eye contact with my wife, date night, all good. And then everything collapsed. And now I don't know who I am, who we are, who we are as a nation. That's okay. But whatever it is that God has revealed in your heart that is revealing to you a dissonance between who you now see that you are and who God has called you to be, your confession moves you toward reorder. And that's a great thing. So confess your own personal sins. And can I suggest, yes, we must confess our collective sins as a nation. We can debate critical race theory. We can debate the meaning of the word systemic racism. We can debate the political affiliations of Black Lives Matter. What is not on the table for debate is that systemic racism is in the roots of our country. And we're called to collective repentance because until we repent, we don't move forward. And I don't mean just personal repentance. I mean naming the sins of our collective being. The sins of not only race, but the sins of individualism and the sins of materialism, the sins of consumerism, the sins of nationalism, all of which in varying degrees at various times have been idols. And until... I deal with my idols, I'm stuck in disorder. <laughs> so pour out your heart in this time of fasting and solemn assembly. And, and it says, cry out to the Lord. Evaluate 
how God's call to reorder will change your relationship with your money, with your time, with social media, with family members, with your sexuality, with your response to the pandemic, with your vote, with your commitment to the common good regardless of who wins. Pour your heart out. God so loves the world means God loves the world. God loves the Muslims. God loves the people wallowing in addiction. God loves the least of these. God loves the soldier. God loves the pacifist. God loves those in the Black Lives Matter movement. God loves those in the Blue Lives Matter movement. God loves the immigrant making their way all the way from Central America or North Africa to the USA or Europe. God loves them all. God loves every tree. God loves the soil. God loves the beasts. God loves the water. God wants our nature as God's people to reflect that same love. So let disorder, both present disorder and whatever disorder comes in the days ahead, allow the disorder to reorder your life upwardly. And this always starts with seeking God. And I'll just say to you that we here at Bethany Community Church have a a daily practice that we offer Monday through Friday every week so that you can seek God daily through Scripture. It's something called Global Monastery. And if you text the word daily to 64600, you can join us daily for a short Scripture reading. It shows up on Instagram. It shows up on Facebook. There's different ways to access the material. But please join us because this is a time of seeking God, regardless of our politics, regardless of our vote, regardless of what we think of those things, We are collectively the people of God and we're called to seek God. You know, the biggest moments in my life that have been transformative for the good have all come out of disorder. Moments that moved me from the center of my map to the edge and then created a new center on this ongoing journey of transformation. I'm in the center, my dad dies. I move to the edge of the map. At the edge of the map, I learn about intimacy with Jesus. And I can stand here and say to you this morning, Jesus is my best friend, and I'm not exaggerating. I enjoy fellowship with Christ on a good run, in solitude. I tell people when I travel, I'm never alone on any flight. Christ is with me. Intimacy came out of the death of my dad. When I quit my job in Friday Harbor, I moved from the center of financial security, though it wasn't much money, there was a weekly paycheck, to total dependency on God. And I found in this new edge of the map, mentors in my life through the Torchbearer community, people who shaped me profoundly as a leader and as a Christ follower. My first year at Bethany Community Church, I was here, uh, I moved uh, from the mountains to, to the city. It was a bit scary, but we had a new center here at this church. And then it was a very hard year. And as a result of that very hard year, some conversations began to ensue among the leaders of our community here saying, you know, we think some of the decisions that were made, Richard, in this past year would have been there would have been better decisions had women been at the table in the decision-making process. 
What does the Bible say about women in ministry? And so out of the disorder of a very difficult year came a charge from the board of Bethany Community Church for me to study the issue of women in ministry. And I went in believing that my answer would be as patriarchal as I was at the beginning, and I came out with a completely different understanding, and now we have women pastors and women on our board and women leading, and that change came about because of disorder. I met a student at a Bible school years ago. I had a center on my map, a, a, a clear understanding of uh, uh, homosexuality from my upbringing, very conservative understanding. And then I met a, a student at one of the Bible schools where I was privileged to teach, and he loves God, and he studies the Scriptures, and he seeks God, and he's serving, and he's gay. And my world explodes, and the map moves. And I don't have answers yet on that subject completely, but I'm in movement. Near burnout at a point, leading to disorder, leading to a daily practice now of meditating on my identity in Christ. Death of dad, quitting my job in Friday Harbor, a a very difficult first year at Bethany Community Church, encounter of students around the world uh, uh, around issues of sexual ethics, near burnout, all of these things, disorder, 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 all of these things leading to the same thing, a better reorder. That's what God has for us. That us, as a church, as a nation, as a planet, I believe that's what God has for us. Because here we are at a moment of collective disorder. And so in collective disorder, this is my word to you. We will seek God, and affirm our primary citizenship. We will pray for our new leader, whoever that new leader is. We will commit to Micah chapter 6, verse 8, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. We will repent and learn from our divisions. We will have hard conversations. We will tell the truth to each other. We will challenge each other. We will forgive each other. We will take up our mantle now more than ever, to be light in the midst of darkness, to be salt in the midst of decay, to be hope in the midst of despair, to be peace in the midst of anxiety, to be service in the midst of selfishness, to be generosity in the midst of greed, to be the presence of Christ in a world more desperate for Christ than they even know. We will take up the mantle. Why? Because God has shaken us awake and said to us, listen, now's the time. Wake up, serve me. Be the presence of Christ. Do you see it? It's always what comes out of the the, uh, disorder of ashes if we seek God, which is what we will do together in the days ahead. Father, thank you for your word and your, your faithfulness to walk with us through valleys of disorder. My prayer is that we would hear your voice, respond and follow you, allowing ourselves to be shaped by you being patient as we live in the ambiguity of unresolved issues. Continue to lead us forward, and we'll thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.